All right, let's get into the Word this week. Um, I want to meet you. I'm actually going to read a verse from Isaiah chapter 9. And if you, if you want to go there, great. It's going to be one verse, and then we're going to move into the New Testament. So I'm going to go from Isaiah 9 to Luke 1, just in case you are um, one that likes to be two verses ahead. We light the second candle of Advent this week. I already lit our first candle that, we, that represented hope. Last week, our first candle in a dark season. Um, This week, we light the peace candle, sometimes called the Bethlehem candle. We'll get to why it's the Bethlehem candle in a moment. It's really because, of course, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Peace arrives in Bethlehem. We'll get into that. But I want to do it through the, the prophetic lens first because that's what this season is. It's not just jumping straight to nativity. We've, done, we've all done that with Christmas our entire Christian lives. We jump to nativity. We preach whatever and teach whatever. And then Christmas we talk about Jesus is alive. Hey, here's a baby in a manger. And that's beautiful. But that's not how it happened. It was, it was generations of, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. And then there were false starts. We think this guy's the one, not the one. Oh, this is what it's going to look like. It's not what it looks like. And false starts start to deteriorate your your hope. So last week when we light the hope candle, it's to start from the place of, listen, your life's had moments of false starts and disappointments, but you're a prisoner of hope and you can't help but hope. And here's why. Okay, so once we have started to establish a Christianity of hope, and that means I'm effervescent with hope. It's got to happen. God is too good. He loves me too much. There's no way he has abandoned me. There's no way he's left me behind. Once that becomes sort of bubbles in your soul, we move to peace because peace is the offering that God gives to us in our anticipation because peace is not the absence of war. That's a secular sort of carnal definition of peace. And if you take that to its extreme, you can end up in an environment where you're always at war physically so that you can be at peace. Like we've always got to be vigilant with our aggressiveness so that there can be peace at home. And if you fall into the secular trap, The only way to have peace at home is to be fighting someone abroad. And that means that peace then rides the back of war. Peace becomes subservient to war. That war leads the way and peace is what follows. And if that's the case, then you are very much anticipating a violent Jesus to come and do the things that violent Jesus needs to do in order to bring peace to the people that love violent Jesus. Can you see the danger in that? And then trying to present people with a Jesus of hope, but don't get too hopeful because there's got to be some bloodshed in order to get to peace. I'm here to declare to you that peace stands independent of the violence and the bloodshed and the war and the revenge of man. It is not subservient to us getting our way. It is not subservient to us winning or defeating enemies. Peace is a gift from God through Jesus to us. And God is no man's slave. <laughs> and God does not play chess while you play checkers. That, that silly analogy. 
and God is not moving the chess pieces of militaries and kings and nations in order to derive peace for his people. Christ is our peace. Here's a prophetic glimpse that we read last week. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. If you'll recall, we read verses 2 through verse 7 in the opening Advent 1 sermon, but I want to reread the very first verse of that segment, Isaiah 9, 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them... A light has shined. Now I want to immediately jump to Luke chapter 1. While you still have that fresh in your mind, and I'll repeat it as you go, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Go to Luke chapter 1 verse 76, and I want to encounter a man named Zacharias. He's a priest in the temple. Zacharias has had an encounter with an angel who told him he was going to have a son. That son is going to lead the way. That son is John the Baptist, by the way. Zacharias doubts, and then he goes mute for the duration of his wife's pregnancy. And upon the birth of his son, they named the boy John, and Zacharias gets his speech back. And he gives this great speech, this great... It's, ta- it's actually a prophecy. In Luke chapter 1, He actually starts talking in verse 68, but I want to read in verse 76. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest. You can see John the Baptist in this. And this is part of our our lectionary reading this morning was to introduce this character, John the Baptist. You will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins. Through the tender mercy of our God, with which the day spring from on high has visited us. That word day spring, before I go any further, is closer to dawn, D-A-W-N. It's actually the same Greek word for the... This is odd to me, but it's actually the same Greek word for the word east. E-A-S-T. It's, it, the sun rises in the east, and so the Greeks would use the same word for east oftentimes that you might use for dawn because the sun comes from the same spot every day. And so the translation calls him day spring. You could say sunrise, okay? With which the, the sunrise from on high has visited us, which is an odd way of saying that. The sunrise doesn't come from on high. The sunrise comes from down low, right? It rises up over the horizon. So you're getting a prophetic image of a sun, S-U-N, from above that's, def- that's technically going to be the sun. S-O-N, from among. Zacharias is doing a great thing here as he's leading us towards the rising of that sun which is in Jesus. And look what he's going to do in verse 79. To give light to those, here's your verse, here's Isaiah 9 too. To give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death and to guide our feet into the way of peace. I read this because I want to show you that Zacharias actually ends his prophecy with Isaiah 9 too. He takes a verse, by the way, this whole prophecy, starting in verse 68, is a mishmash of Old Testament. If you go through with a concordance and you read his prophecy, he, he pulls some Psalms, he pulls some Isaiah. He's just, he knows his, his, his word and he's using verses as he goes. And the interesting thing is where his foot lands. His foot lands on to give light to those who are in darkness and the shadow of death. But he can't help himself. Did you notice there's another sentence? Look at 79 again. 
To give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. That's Isaiah 9 too. What's this next line? To guide our feet into the way of peace. That's not in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2. That's Zacharias giving a prophecy on the back of a prophecy. It's a new prophecy on the back of an old prophecy. The old prophecy was he's going to give light to people that sit in darkness. And Zacharias says, you know what that light's going to do? It's going to guide our feet into the way of peace. I like how Eugene Peterson says it in the message. Showing us the way one foot at a time down the path of peace. Showing us the way one foot at a time down the path of peace. He who comes out of the east, the sun, the sun that rises. They're, they're, they're on a horizon right here. They're, they're, they know it's close. Zacharias can feel it. He's been told by the angel, this baby you're going to have, he's going to be the final word before the next one. And so he's holding this kid going, this ain't the one, but he's the one in front of the one. You know, like this is the man that knows the man <laughs> kind of thing. And, and the sun, S-U-N, is rising to all of us who sit in great darkness. And you know what that sun's going to do? He's going to guide our feet into the way of peace. Why does Zacharias add that line? That's not in the scripture. Well, part of the reason he adds it is because he's being prophetic and the prophet hears from God and says what he hears God saying. So what is God saying in that season? I'm going to show, use this light. I'm going to use this light to show you how to walk in the way of peace. But he probably got the idea from a text we read last week. Because remember, last week we read Isaiah 9, verses 2 to 7. And do you remember verse 6? When it starts listing off his names, wonderful counselor, mighty God, Prince of peace. And then he goes on to say, the, of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. So Zacharias knows that that Isaiah 9 prophecy of the light coming up in the darkness is owned by, given by who, someone called Prince of Peace. I say someone because they haven't met Jesus. He knows he's holding the next best thing. He's got John, but he goes, there's a prince coming. He's a prince of peace. He's not a prince of war. He's a prince of peace, but, he, but he's the sunlight of God on the horizon of time that brings us peace. So I want to concentrate today on what I would title this, the way of peace. I want to concentrate on what Zechariah says to guide our feet into the way of peace. I want to ask you, what is the way of peace? So I started by telling you that the way of peace is not, let's have a war. And then once the war is done, all the enemies are dead, then we'll be at peace. That's carnal. That's a secular way of getting to peace. That's removing obstacles, evil, and impediments so that because they're gone, we are now at peace. That's a secular peace. I'm not saying it's not a peace. I'm saying it's not the Prince of Peace. Okay? I'm not saying it's not peace to have no war. I'm saying it's not the peace we're praying for. So that it's not subservient to having to shed blood. It rides on the back of his shed blood. A peace that guides my path step by step, one foot at a time, day by day, because the sun has risen in my life. So let's start by thinking like Israel. That's what Advent is, is to think like those who had to wait, those who had to be patient. Israel's been waiting They've been waiting for a deliverer for a long time by the time Zacharias holds little baby John and says, it's next, sun's coming up. And they've been waiting and waiting for the arrival of their Messiah. 
And because they've watched empires rise and fall, spearheaded by dynamic men, the Alexander the Greats and the Nebuchadnezzars and the King Xereses of the world and the Julius Caesars, because they've watched, and I didn't mean great as in quality or high morality, but men of stature, men of renown, it became easy to think that what they needed to look for was a better Caesar. They needed, a, they needed a king who was a good king. They needed a conqueror who was a good conqueror. And we're all susceptible to the idea that what the world really needs is a benevolent dictator, a good guy in charge of bad guys. It's not that we don't need a world, that's not that we're looking to be delivered from a world where someone's Top dog, we're just looking for a world where the top dog's a better dog. <laughs> that's the way we think in carnal terms is, and that's, and so don't, don't judge Israel for this. I can't judge Israel for this. They've looked around and watched how do, how do empires rise? Someone comes along, smashes somebody else. So they keep praying, God, give us our smasher. We're waiting on our smasher, our smasher, the good guy smasher, the good guy that, that finally gets it right, that does all the stuff the bad guys do, but he does it better. He's the white hat cowboy. There's the black hat cowboy who goes into town, shoots up the saloon, but there's the white hat cowboy who shoots the black hat cowboy, right? I'm, I'm talking to a Western generation, I know. And in Westerns, you got the good dude that has the same kind of gun as the bad dude. He's just better with it. And he don't hurt people with his. He helps people. He's the benevolent shooter. <laughs> and that's so deep into our consciousness that we can't help ourselves. Israel was there. We're there a lot of times too. And Israel was there to go, he's coming, man. We're going to get ours. We're going to get someone who's going to be the one who delivers us. They've looked so forward to a deliverer. The Gospels say that that the angel tells Mary, Gabriel tells Mary, that you're going to have a son. He's going to deliver his people from her sins. And when you think about that, you tend to think about it in new covenant terms, which means he's going to deliver us from internal sins. All my greed, jealousy, envy, lust, lying, you know, he's going to set me free from that. And you're not wrong, but they weren't thinking that way. When they thought about a redeemer to deliver them from their sins, they were living in an old covenant world. And old covenant sins manifested itself in external bondages. God told them, if you don't take care of the widow and the stranger and you don't take care of the land, I'm going to send somebody in that takes it away from you. And they're going to conquer you and they're going to own you. And if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray, I'll hear from heaven, forgive their sins and heal their land. Because in an old covenant context, what happened when you sinned was externally you lost your place. So Israel is being, they're possessed by the Romans. They don't own their own property anymore. They pay taxes into Rome. As far as they're concerned, Rome is the judgment of God against them for their sins. When they look forward to a Messiah to deliver them from their sins, you know how it's going to be manifested that it happened? Rome's going down. Because if we've sinned, God sent an invader. This is how they thought. God sent an invader. And if we get our sin right, God will take away the invader. 
So the one who delivers us from our sins is actually the one who delivers us from our Caesar. Oh, see, see the mentality when Jesus arrives. And this is actually what Jesus has to work against his entire ministry. Because he's not there to overthrow Caesar using Caesar's sword. He's there to overthrow all the powers of darkness by stepping into the darkness, which is completely bonkers. You don't beat death by dying. If you die, death beat you. This is why I always celebrate when we talk about resurrection. Because Jesus went, watch this. The only way to really beat him is to step into the best thing he can do to you. What's the best thing he can do to you? Kill you. So Jesus goes, bring it on. I get, I get giddy when I start talking about this. I get kind of excited. Because to me, this is Christianity. That's him stepping into going, bring it on. What's the best you got? The best you got's death? All you guys can do is kill me? Bring that. Because you're all going to die. So I'm going to step into your death to show you it ain't over. <laughs> and then, boom, resurrection. And so that fires me up every time I think about it, every time I talk about it. And I'm not even supposed to be preaching on it right now. And I can't help myself. It's just that good. But part of the reason I can't help it is because for me, that is peace. That's the knowledge that you can bring anything you have at me. My Jesus has put the way of peace in front. He's already stepped into it to say, Paul, it'll be okay. You see, Paul, peace is not war isn't happening. Peace is we can step through it while it happens. Because what I offer you is my example. I offer you what I've paid for, what I've done. Israel's been looking forward to a deliverer because she saw her oppressors as a result of her sin. So peace in their context had to do with crushing Rome. But there's more. Because after baby John comes baby Jesus. And the story, when it transitions from Luke 1 into Luke 2... The son, if you needed an illustration as the Bible's unfolding, you got the prophecy of the son at the end of Luke 1. You can see the very first rays. Here's your shot. Here's your, your shot in the movie. The very first rays. And then Luke 2 comes and the sun rises a little more. And in Luke chapter 2, verse 12, this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now I read to you from the New King James, not the finest translation of this in the Greek. This is a little better. Some of your translations might say, Peace toward men of goodwill, or peace, I think this is the ESV, Peace to those who please him. So you go, why only peace to those who please him? Because this is vital. Jesus came as the sunrise to penetrate the darkness of those who were walking in darkness. Zacharias' prophecy on the back of Isaiah's prophecy. But that prophecy said that what he's actually going to do is he's going to show you the way of peace. He's going to show you how to get there. He's not just going to give it to you. He's going to show you the way there. See the difference? It's not peace on earth, goodwill toward men, whether you like it or not, because it's not peace on earth right now, is it? It's peace on earth, goodwill towards those who walk towards it, for the, towards those who are pleasing 
towards the, it's, it's really this, it's peace on earth towards those who walk the path of peace. You can have it. I'll show you how, he says. It's not blanket peace, regardless of what you do. It's the opportunity to walk in peace, regardless of what's done to you. Let me say that again. Jesus does not offer blanket peace regardless of what you do. He offers you the opportunity to walk in peace regardless of what's done to you. So let's break that down. It's not blanket peace no matter what you do. And if you think so, try some stuff and see if you're at peace. Try some stuff, see if your marriage is at peace, see if your mind is at peace, see if your world is at peace, because you can do some things and create absolute hell and chaos, and there goes your peace. He did not promise you that you will have peace in the middle of all the stupid decisions you make. In fact, your stupid decisions ought to rock your peace pretty hard, like a warning that maybe you shouldn't have done that. So the promise is not peace regardless of the stuff you do. The promise is a peace you can have regardless of the stuff that's done to you or the stuff you go through. The way of peace in the middle of the valley of the shadow of death. That's the guarantee. I don't leave you. I don't forsake you. I'm going to show you a way through this problem. So that no matter how dark it gets, no matter how desperate it gets, it is not God coming to take away our issues. It's God coming to give us peace in our issues. So when people say, if you really think God's a God of love, why does he let bad things happen to good people? Why does he let that little baby die? Why did he let that girl get raped? Why did he? These are great questions. They're great questions. If a God's a God of love and he's a God of power, why doesn't he just stop all of that? Well, I'm not going to claim to answer for God. I know my God is good. I know that he expresses his love towards me and that he stepped into my death and my pain. I know that when I go through it, he goes through it. But also know that the promise he made to the world was not, I'm here to make sure nothing goes wrong for you. His promise was, I'm here to give you peace when things go wrong for you. I'm here to provide you a way to peace, a footpath that you can step your foot on knowing that I have accomplished what I said I would accomplish. So let's look at this through a New Testament lens for just a little bit because as much as, and you know, Advent is about how they viewed it, it's about us waiting, but we're on the other side of this. We have a, we have, and I just got all excited about resurrected Jesus. <laughs> well, I can't help but get all excited about resurrected Jesus because that's where I'm living from. That's where you're living from. And I have to, in some respects, put on pause all of my excitement about resurrected Jesus to try to put myself back into a pre-birth Jesus mentality to say, what, what were they looking for when they saw him? I know what I see in him now from the other side. So we can't help but look at peace now through a new covenant lens. Let's do that with Paul. And I want to do it in two spots. Let's start in Philippians. I want to say there's a lot of scripture in the New Testament on peace. I mean, I could exhaust you and me both turning to verses on peace and it wouldn't do much good because you'd have so many of them. You ain't going to remember them all anyway. You've got concordances. Go look up the word peace and just go crazy because there's a bunch of them. And most of your epistles end by your writers, whether they're Paul or Peter or John, wishing peace, grace and peace onto their audience. They either open with grace and peace or they close with grace and peace because it's the beginning and the end of everything we are as the children of God stepping into his peace. But I want to give you a couple that are... A, particularly powerful, in my opinion. Philippians 4. 
Paul says this in verses 6 and 7. Be anxious for nothing. Boy, that's asking a lot, right? Well, watch the antidote. Okay? Don't get discouraged if you go, be anxious for nothing. I've been anxious all week. <laughs> right? I'm anxious right now. It's okay. It's okay. He's give it, he can give you away. He can give you away. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Even thanking Him that I'm going through stuff. Thanksgiving as a part of my praise, as a part of my worship. Let your requests be made known to God. And look what happens. The peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. You want to know why I told you a moment ago you need to carve space in your life? Because the world's coming at you, man. You need to carve some space. I'm not putting legalism on you to go, it needs to be 10 minutes long. You need an hour with the Lord. You need to pray this prayer. No, no, no. Flow in the unforced rhythms of grace, okay? You're the people of God. You get to flow down this river of His grace. It's going to look different for you than it does for you. And that's okay because your Father uniquely loves you, all right? And, and he, he's, he's okay with your space and all the junk you bring in, your anxieties, you bring all of that to him with thanksgiving. It's not thank you that bad stuff's happening to me. It's, it's honesty. I thank you that even though this happens to me, I know you never leave me. I know you never forsake me. I thank you that even though I don't understand what's going on right now, you do. I thank you that you hold my hand when all I want to do is make a fist and hurt somebody. I thank you. That even when I do make a fist and hurt something, you're there to pick up the pieces and maybe heal my hand. <laughs> right? I thank you for that. And then he says, once you do that, what happens? Verse 7 is, is phenomenal. The peace of God that surpasses all understanding. This means a peace you can't possibly comprehend. How do you have peace in the middle of this crisis? Well... I know, I'm not going to be able to tell you. I'm not going to be able to explain it. It's a piece of past understanding. I, it, there's no way that I, can, I could have got here without that time with my father where I reflected on what Jesus is to me. This is why Jesus says, this is why the angels say to the shepherds, peace on earth, goodwill towards men who pursue peace. Peace on earth, goodwill towards those who step towards that peace. If you step towards it, he goes, it's here. It's waiting on you. It's not a promise to get rid of your problems. It's a promise to put peace into your chaos, into your existence, to walk you through. And you go, well, that doesn't even make sense. Welcome to peace that passes all understanding. You can't understand it. That's okay. You don't need to understand it. You need to walk in it. And I truly believe you can be so at peace that you begin to rest in the middle of places where everyone else stresses. That's our example of Jesus in the boat saying to his disciples, let's cross over to the other side. And then he falls asleep and the storm hits and he doesn't wake up. And you go, how could he sleep through a storm? Well, when you know you're going to the other side and dad said, come to the other side, you're going to be all right. And that is not an easy place to get to, by the way. That is not as easy as it sounds to sleep through storms. I know it's all lofty. We talk about how you can sleep through a storm if you know Jesus. And I've, I've got up and preached that a thousand times and 999 times woke up the second the lightning hit. Like, freaking, 
freak out. <laughs> what are we going to do next? <laughs> and I'm, I'm telling people, you can sleep through the storm if you know where you're going. But the truth is, you can. The way of peace is there. But learning how to lay your head down in his thanksgiving and his love. That's the, that's the process. Of your, that's why I beg you to carve space. That's what we're trying to do at the Garden Church is to have a little space where for maybe 90 minutes, maybe two hours of your life, you go, you breathe deeply the oxygen that's needed in a garden space and you let go of that stuff. And if nothing else, you get trained in here for how to do this out there. This becomes a, a nursery, a training ground for little plants that are trying to learn how to grow. And that's all of us. And so that it's not about, I can't have that if I'm not at church. It's that I'm equipped when I'm with the church and the saints to learn how to breathe deeply the oxygen of peace and rest so that I can practice that on my own so then I can come back into the space with community and breathe deeply again. This is why he said, I'm building my church, not I'm building a bunch of solo artists. Because part of building the church is providing the church with a way for peace. To show all of us as a community of believers how to walk this out. And now my favorite one. If you're in Philippians, then you're one book away from Colossians. So jump to Colossians chapter 3. My, I say this is my favorite one because several years ago, the Holy Spirit impressed this verse on me to do a little bit of a Greek word study. Uh, your pastor's not a Greek scholar, not a Hebrew scholar. I dabble. That's as good as I do. Um, you know, I had my coursework in grad school on Greek and Hebrew, but that doesn't make you anything other than someone that knows how to find the word. <laughs> and so I can go find it and do something with it. And years ago when that began to birth in me, um, the desire to do that. This was one of the verses that the Father took me to. In Colossians chapter 3, verse, 10, verse 15, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. All right, that looks a little bit like Philippians 4 where with thanksgiving, we're not anxious. And what comes out of our thanksgiving? The peace of God passes all understanding. So if you work your way backwards in verse 15, you've got thankfulness in one body. There's the church. So there's our garden space. But not just our garden space. That's the body of Christ at large. That's the little C Catholic church. That's the universal church of Jesus Christ across the globe, around the world, and throughout time who is the, the singular body of Christ being built up across time with Christ as the head. And how do we do it? Remember what I told you, when the sun rises in the east in Luke 1, Zacharias thought, there's one more thing I need to say. He's going to show you how to put your foot in peace. That was Zacharias' final words. When that sun rises, we're going to learn how to walk this out. And then here comes Jesus. And we're learning how to walk this out. Now we're learning how to walk it out in community. And we're learning how to walk it out in thankfulness. But that doesn't exclude your ability to follow the Holy Spirit individually. Because if you don't have that, then the, you're forced to follow Pastor Paul. This is the danger that happens in church, is that we get a figurehead. We get someone who we know studies and prays and talks to the Father. And we go, well, I don't need my own time. I'll just go and hear what God's saying to so-and-so. And then we follow. And I, we, I've, I've watched this take hold 
shiploads of people into the rocks. You have too. Because we've atrophied our own ability to follow the Holy Spirit. You're better than that. I want to show you why. The peace of God rule in your hearts. It doesn't rule in community. It rules in your heart. The peace of God rules in your heart. And the word rule is the Greek word brabeu. Brabeu never appears again in the Bible. This is it. Which means it's unique. Which means Paul picked it on purpose. He thought that out. And when I want to use a word I've not used before, he actually has used the counter of this word, but that's for another sermon. Brabeo is translated umpire. Now, I think baseball when I think umpires. Okay, Baseball was not around. Unfortunately, the first century did not know the joys of America's pastime. But they did know track and field and wrestling, which had umpires that declared winners umpires that stated the rules, umpires that governed the field. So when Paul uses umpire, he's saying the peace of God rules in your heart as if he's your umpire. Peace, hear this, peace is your umpire, not war. Conflict is not your umpire. Peace is your umpire. So wherever there's peace, you know your heart is in the space it's meant to be. But when peace gets rocked, something's wrong. You see, Jesus didn't come to give you blanket peace. Jesus came to offer you the path to peace in him. And then he gave you the guidance system to get there called the Holy Spirit. And he puts the Holy Spirit in your life because Paul writes to the Romans, the kingdom of God is not meat and drink. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay, you're in the kingdom, the kingdom's in you, the Holy Spirit's in the kingdom, the Holy Spirit's in you. What's the ingredients of the Holy Spirit within the kingdom? Righteousness, peace, and joy. Well, you are righteous because Christ has made you righteous. We'll deal with joy later, another sermon. But peace is part of the kingdom of God. And according to Paul, peace is what umps you. Peace blows the whistle. When the whistle blows, it's peace going, mm, careful. I'll, oh, you can turn if you want to. All things are lawful for you. You're not under the law. You want to you wanna take this course in life? Take it. But I'm telling you, there's problems. Anybody ever heard the Holy Spirit say that? And what I mean is, maybe you didn't hear the words, but you felt the agitation. You were about to make a decision and something in you went, And then you did it anyway? Anyone? <laughs> Everyone? <laughs> you did it anyway. And it was the Holy Spirit. You had peace until you didn't. And when you didn't is when you should have stopped and went, the umpire's blowing the whistle. The umpire's blowing the whistle going, mm, careful. And you went, eh, I'm going to do it anyway. Oh, I'm not under the law. <laughs> Maybe you didn't say it that way, but you kind of went, I got this figured out. That's kind of the same way of, yeah, this will work out. Yeah. If it doesn't work out, God will fix it. Well, okay. <laughs> let's, let's take the long way around, shall we? Let's take the, if this doesn't work out, God's going to spend the next 12 years fixing it route when we could have missed that. Okay, that's, a, that's between you and the Holy Spirit. He's not going to leave you or forsake you. Good news. Bad news, you're going to hit the rocks. And when you do, it's going to be disastrous and horrible and bad things happen. So sometimes we move against 
the rocking of peace. Hey, listen, this can be real subtle. I mean, real. It can be, you got to fine tune it, man. And I don't want to bend this till it breaks, but I know recently when we were in a, we were just in a head on wreck a few weeks ago. Most of you guys know about that. Everybody's fine, except for my truck, which is demolished. But I'm talking right before I took off across that road. I heard you should turn right. Not audibly, but very clearly. You should turn right and go U-turn and come back to where you want to go. And right as I heard it, the traffic opened and I saw my path and I hammered it. And about 0.7 seconds later, boom, because the guy on the other side, who I don't take responsibility with whether he listened to the Holy Spirit or not, decided he wanted to turn left while I was going straight. I'm pretty sure the Holy Spirit didn't say to him, turn left, but I'm going to leave that between him and the Lord. And boom, and I, the second I hit him, I thought, that little voice told me to turn right. And you know what? I've done pretty good in life listening to that voice. I listen to that voice a lot. I've, I've trained and, and, and hit enough rocks to go listen to that little voice of peace. And so I was praying about it later going, is there a lesson to learn? Because, I mean, you could have told me to turn right a little faster, you know, like... <laughs> I could, this is the stuff I come up with in my private time to go, you know, if you're going to tell me to turn right, you could have said it like before we got to the stop sign. And what I felt the Holy Spirit say is it's something you wrote, son, in your last book. Jonah goes down to Joppa and finds a ship going to Tarshish and pays the fare and gets on. And I wrote in that book, I think Jonah saw that there was an empty seat going the other way and thought maybe it was God opened a seat for him. Because sometimes we think opportunity equals the will of God. And, I, and this is what the Holy Spirit showed me. He said, when you saw the opening, you went. Opportunity is not always peace. And so it's not about there's an opening, I'm going to go. Maybe there is. And I really think you can live by the green light. Just keep moving until peace gets rocked. And when peace gets rocked, you better consider that's your red light or at least a really bright yellow that goes, wait a minute, because the Holy Spirit is not about agitating your life. He's the peace of God. He's the sunrise that shows your feet the way to peace. So I love Colossians 3.15. I love let the peace of God brebeo you. I love let the peace of God umpire you. Because you can take, here's some equipment. You can leave the garden today with a piece of equipment. I want to learn the practice of letting peace umpire my life. Pastor Paul, how do we do that? Well, you start with learning what it sounds like. Which doesn't happen with living your life at 1,000 miles per hour and not spending any time with the Lord and then expecting that you're going to be an expert in how to follow the Spirit. So, practice. You go, practice makes perfect. I, I hate that phrase. Ain't nobody perfect. You can't practice your way to perfection. You're not going to be perfect anyway. That's too lofty of a standard. But practice puts you in the position where you know what he sounds like. And I'll close with a thought that has little to do with Advent but has a lot to do with following the voice of the Spirit. And that is... The great tragedy is to be dissatisfied with the ability to hear the Holy Spirit. You've probably heard me tell this before, but to me, one of the great tragedies of the story of Elijah is that his ministry ends by sitting in a cave and telling God, I'm the only one you got left. He's whining and he's mad. 
and then there's a there's a earthquake and then there's fire that falls out of heaven and then there's wind and the bible says the lord was not in any of them and then there was a still small voice and elijah heard it and knew it was god and god came back to him and said what are you doing here and elijah answered the exact same thing he whined and he said i'm the only one you got and god said okay Go anoint Elisha. He's going to be a prophet in your place. He lost his ministry the day. This is what I felt like the Lord showed me. He lost his ministry the day that he stopped appreciating that his greatest gift was the ability to recognize the still small voice. In a world that wants to impress you with wind, fire, and earthquakes, and in a church world that tries to replicate that every Sunday morning, wind, fire, and earthquakes, the greatest gift you've been given is peace on earth towards men who'll step towards peace. Listen for the voice and step towards it. That will not promise war will end. It'll promise you a way through the war. And that's even better. Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you today that you have shown us the way of peace. Thank you, Father, that the sun has arisen in the hearts and lives of each person here and those who will watch and listen later. And that peace is not that you take all war away and we're looking forward to that. There's going to be an apocatastasis. I truly believe that this whole thing is going to manifest in the natural someday. And the warriors are going to lay their, their swords down. And I think I'm part of getting that process started in my own world. I do. But in the meantime, what you've given us is the way to peace. You've given us hope. Not that everything will go right, but that when nothing goes right, we can be at peace in it. You have not made a promise of blanket peace regardless of what we do because a lot of what we do brings on heartbreak and heartache, and it should. But what you did promise is that no matter what's done to us, we can walk in peace. And Father, I pray we tune our ear to the whistle of the umpire. <laughs> The umpire that walks out with us seven days a week, 24-7, that we can always listen to the little voice that says, turn here, say this, stop that, watch out. And that if we learn to listen to that voice, it doesn't mean bad things won't happen. It means that they will not own us because we serve the Prince of Peace. I thank you for that miracle that is the voice of the Spirit. In Jesus' precious name, amen.